Today on Ag News Daily. In order to make alcohol out of corn, you have to effectively digest the starch into sugars. And that takes uh, uh, that, that takes an enzyme. That enzyme uh, we have in our own saliva is called alpha amylase. Good afternoon and happy Friday, ladies and gentlemen. I'm very excited to kick off Valentine's Day weekend not spending it doing anything special, probably just going to be curled up in bed, Delaney, because we're experiencing some pretty cold weather. I woke up to a bunch of snow this morning. Mm, Yeah, we are as well. It's like negative, I want to say 10 or 15 degrees out today, probably colder with wind chill. I'm not sure, but it's uh, a bit brisk out there, Ashton. I don't think I'll be doing a lot of outside activities this weekend for Valentine's Day. I certainly won't. And, you know, I was thinking earlier, my one of my roommates and I, we went out and ran our errands earlier this morning because we're just anxious about getting on the roads as the weather gets worse and whatnot. And I was like, you know what? I can't wait to tell Delaney about it snowing and it being cold. But you're saying it's, you know, in the negatives up there. It's only 21 <laughs> here. So I guess I really can't complain that much. I told my roommate, I was like, I just know that she's going to make fun of me. <laughs> Yeah, I will make fun of you, but it's definitely, I would say, colder down here. I, you know. Up here, I, up here. I'm not good with geography. I, I, I wasn't going to say anything about that, but um, you you brought it up. So, yeah, you're, you're up, not down from me. But kicking things off, talking about some news, Delaney, what are you watching today? Well, the newswire has been a little dry today, Ashton, that's for sure. And so has Tyson's bank account, I guess, if you want to say that. But two of America's largest meat companies fell on Thursday. Their stocks fell as rising animal feed prices and transportation costs have been threatening their margins, even as we are continuing to see improving economic conditions worldwide. Tyson, which is, of course, the biggest meat producer in America, said that their first fiscal quarter earnings beat analyst estimates, but delivered a mixed outlook for the rest of the year and said that with their chicken business exposed to surging prices for corn and soybean meal, as well as rising crop exports to shrink China's stockpiles, their uh, fiscal margins could be shrunk pretty considerably. And again, this is a multi-million, if not billion dollar company. So let's take that with a little bit of a grain of salt here. But I think it does give an indication of really some bigger costs or bigger concerns in agriculture, which are those feed costs that they mentioned there. You know, not only chicken farmers, but also hog farmers, uh, beef farmers, as well as if we've got any sheep farmers that listen, I'm sure that they are also going to be having to deal with some of these Increased cost concerns for feed costs this year, which could uh, create some slow recovery for the meat sector. That's for sure. Coupled with, you know, the battered down or beaten down sector we've seen during the coronavirus pandemic. Delaney, talking more about the meat industry, Bell and Evans, who is one of the nation's leading producers of premium poultry products, is partnering with Cargill and soil health nonprofit. Rodell Institute to incentivize the transition of 50,000 conventional acres to certified organic over the next five years. 
president of Bill and Evans, Scott Setchler, says that the company is experiencing significant growth in its organic chicken program, increasing its need for organic corn and soybeans in the U.S. And you know, this statement doesn't surprise me too much because in, you know, fast food restaurants like KFC and our, our Brahms down here, which is just like a drive through burger and chicken place, um, they've, they've been advertising their organic products. And so you're more specifically their organic chicken products. So this didn't really take me by surprise, but Bill and Evans recently announced a long-term sourcing agreement with Cargill to exclusively secure its organic organic grain and increase the domestic organic grain supply. As part of the agreement, Setchler says Cargill will reward U.S. farmers making the transition through subsidized organic crop consulting services provided by Rodell Institute. He says with Bell and Evans's investment of $500 million, often vocalized hurdles to transitioning organic will be addressed. He suggests the most common are knowing where to start and guaranteeing a market following a three-year transition period. Setchler also points out that just 1% of total U.S. acreage is certified organic, yet the organic food market has grown to a $50 billion industry. But I'm not surprised that the market for organic products has grown so much. And, you know, I wonder if some of that growth is due to the coronavirus pandemic as consumers are, you know, growing more concerned about where their food comes from and, you know, kind of buying more locally. Nash, and is that the reason for them creating this initiative or this goal to switch acres over is just because the demand for organics is rising? I am not really sure, you know, where that the idea comes from or or stems from. Um, It doesn't really say in this article, but I mean, the market is, is growing and, you know, their president of of Bill and Evans, um, Scott Setchler kind of points towards the growing market. So I, I guess I can say yes. Okay. Well, we are also seeing a growing market when it comes to commodities. We've seen, of course, some commodities pull back a little bit this week, but The Kansas City Fed on Thursday said that with these increase in crop prices, they're really seeing it help the farm economy overall and have said that about 80% of bankers expect farm incomes for the entire year to be substantially higher than projected in early 2020. Not only that, but a different Federal Reserve, I believe the Chicago Federal Reserve, also noted this week that the global pandemic isn't hurting the value of farmland across the heart of the U.S. Corn Belt. Land values rose about 6% last year, which is the biggest gain since 2012, and mostly indicating states like Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin seeing the largest jump in farmland values. But they said along with lower interest rates, Farmland fortunes were boosted by last year's rebound in revenue and crop prices. So I guess now is not really a great time to buy farmland if you were thinking about it. Well, Delaney, if you will recall late last year, I can't remember exactly when, but I shared a story about the Mexican government publishing a decree banning the use of both GMO corn and glyphosate over the next three years. 
And this decree is likely to face legal challenges this month to reverse the proposal, according to the new head of Mexico's top farm lobby. Juan Cortina, who is the president of Mexico's Farm Council, said that he thinks the lawsuits are needed to get the government to back down. The vaguely worded decree has generated across the board industry opposition, plus frenzied lobbying efforts aimed aimed at urging officials to reconsider. Cortina noted that last year, Mexico's ag sector grew by about 2% despite the economic downfall caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Mexico's livestock sector could face a loss of competitiveness under the import ban due to its heavy dependence on the bulk of some 17 million tons annually of imported yellow corn, which of course is used to fatten up cows, pigs, and chickens, and nearly all of it supplied from U.S. farmers who almost exclusively grow GMO varieties of corn. So Cortina is arguing that government officials must present alternatives and that farmers would welcome them if they are price competitive and equally effective. And when this degree first took place a couple weeks ago, a couple months, um, you know, they were expecting to have some lashing out of, of farmers, maybe not so much lashing out, but definitely some opposition. And so we're seeing that now, but going to be something that I keep my eye out on because nothing has been, you know, done as as of right now, but it is likely that the legal challenges will be coming here in the near future. Well, Ashton, I tell you what, one other thing I've been keeping my eye on today besides the markets is the fertilizer market and their outlook. We're again continuing to see fertilizer prices skyrocket. We are now well past prices for 2019 and 2020 and close to about $550 per ton when it comes to the cost of fertilizer. Domestically here, it sounds like we're going to be following a trend in this following a trend set in the second half of 2020, where we saw U.S. anhydrous ammonia prices continue to rise here into the month of January and now into the month of February because supplies are remaining very, very tight. Uh, Folks are suggesting that recovery for the industrial ammonia consumption continues as chemical production adopts or adapts, excuse me, to COVID-19 challenges, which really sounds like folks are contributing as the reason we're seeing such tight supplies right now and restricting the available use that we see for agricultural usage as well as plants and other folks around the globe that use ammonia. But sounds like, again, if you have not locked in your fertilizer needs, yeah, might be wanting to shoot yourself in the foot right now. But prices are going to be higher from here and pretty tight supplies by all accounts. So I hope folks do have their fertilizer and anhydrous needs locked in for this spring. Delaney, like you said, the news wires were a bit dry today. I only had those two stories to share. So I'm all out of news if you want to hop over to the markets. Absolutely, Ashton. Let's do that. And as I mentioned, we saw 
pretty good pullback really across the board this week. And we saw commodities finish mostly mixed here at the end of the week. Corn, however, finished lower as the March contract shed two and a quarter cent to close at 538 and three quarters. The May down three and a quarter to close at 536 and a half. In the swimming pits, March today up four and a half cents to close at 1372. The May up four and a half to close at 1371 and a quarter. Chicago wheat today, March pulled back three and a quarter cent to close at 636. The May up two and a quarter as well to close at 641 and a quarter. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets. Green across the cattle complex today as the April live cattle contract added 205 to close at 125.17 and a half. The June up a dollar seventy-seven and a half to close at one twenty-one thirty. Feeder cattle also higher, as I mentioned there. The March contract adding a dollar seventy to close at one forty eighty-five. The April up a dollar thirty-five to close at one forty-four seventy-two and half. Lean hogs higher today as well as the April contract added ninety-five cents to close at eighty-five twenty. The May up seventy-two and a half cents to close at eighty-seven ten. And rounding out their markets with the class three dairy milk futures. March 51 cents lower today to close at 16.52. The April down 43 cents to close at 17.71. Without further ado, Ashton, let's kick it over to our interview for today. For today's Friday conversation, we are talking to Dr. Marty Matlock, who is the executive director of the University of Arkansas Resiliency Center and a professor of bio and agricultural engineering. Marty, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It is a frigid day in the Ozarks today. Well, see, I'm down here in Lubbock, Texas. I, I'm a Red Raider myself, and it is snowing pretty heavily here. So it is a pretty rigid day here as well. I'm right there with you. But kicking things off, talking about you know what I brought you on the podcast to, to chat about, Enogen Corn and your research that you guys have done over at the Resiliency Center with Syngenta Feeds. But before we really get into that, I want to know a little bit more about your background in agriculture and what you have been up to at the Resiliency Center. Certainly. Uh, I've been working well, most all of my career on the issues of uh, the interface between uh, the agricultural production and environmental ecosystem services and uh, this, and, and closing the, the process so that we increase efficiency and reduce impacts. That's been uh, a focus of my research since I got my PhD at Oklahoma State University uh, several decades ago. Uh, here at the University of Arkansas, I work very closely with Dr. Greg Toma in chemical engineering using a process called life cycle assessment. Uh, Greg is our life cycle assessment team leader. Uh, we work on evaluating uh, impacts of processes and we also evaluate possible options, what ifs. Um, and life cycle assessment, the process itself is pretty straightforward. It's a, it's a, like an accounting process, but instead of money, we're looking at uh, greenhouse gas, energy, water, uh, other process, other mass and energy flows through systems that give us products or processes we need. So, Marty, the Resiliency Center and Syngenta Feeds have been working on a research project with um, Enogen Corn, and I think it's quite interesting, but for those who don't know the difference between Enogen Corn and, you know, regular corn, can you just give us a little bit of a background on that hybrid? 
Certainly. Uh, Energen corn was developed ultimately for the biofuels industry because one of the things you have to do, this is something in the Ozarks we, we know, our great granddad's knew in the Ozarks, is that you have to, uh, in order to make alcohol out of corn, you have to effectively digest the starch into sugars. And that takes, uh, uh, th- that takes an enzyme. That enzyme uh, we have in our own saliva is called alpha amylase. Uh, in order to do this at uh, at a high uh, rate level, like we do in industrial ethanol production, uh, the producers have to add that enzyme externally in order to f- uh, facilitate conversion of starches into sugars. And it happens to us every time we take a piece, a bite of a piece of bread or a potato or any other or corn or any other starchy food. We uh, the sugars are the digestion process begins, and the sugars are what uh, in um, and a fermentation process are converted into alcohol. Again, our great granddads knew that when they were boiling the mash for their for their stills. Uh, so, what we uh, what Syngenta did, and we had nothing to do with this. Of course, this is their own uh, genius. Is they developed a corn that has increased alpha amylase enzymes in it already, so that the uh, process of conversion of uh, starches to sugars happens very rapidly so that enhanced alpha amylase that enhanced enzyme uh, conversion enzyme content uh, was really uh, perfect for and was designed for uh, the the folks in the biofuels industry but because there were times when there were excess uh, energy and corn available folks started feeding it to their cattle so there's nothing wrong with it it's perfectly edible feeding it to their cattle and lo and behold it helped the digestibility, it seemed, in the cattle, too. So they asked the University of Nebraska and Kansas State University separately to do feed trials to see if, in fact, uh, there was an improvement in performance based upon that characteristic of the, of the corn. And, in fact, there was. The corn uh, showed the, uh, the, 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 the beef that were finished with corn in uh, in those two trials, both showed significant uh, differences, statistically significant differences in their uh, in their performance and weight gain, feed conversion, uh, feed uh, use efficiency, and so that's where we came in. So that the folks at Syngenta asked Greg and me to to do the so what analysis so it's more efficient that's good if it's cheaper or faster that's good for the producers but is it better in terms of sustainability so they asked us to perform a life cycle assessment to determine if in fact uh, those increases in, in feed conversion efficiency and reductions in manure production etc uh, would have an impact on other metrics of sustainability like greenhouse gas emissions so we performed those analyses based upon the science of uh, the University of Nebraska and Kansas State University's feed trials. And in fact, we found that uh, we can see you know, a, between a, uh, the Kansas State, a 5% and Nebraska, a 6% uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions uh, and energy use and water use and land use, all the things that are associated with corn in the feed system. Marty, this is a lot to digest, and it's it's pretty complex to try and understand some of these things that are going on in the field of research. So why don't we take just a deeper dive into what your research process looked like? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Certainly. I, I just can't overlook the fact that you made a nice pun with digest. So <laughs> uh, what, what, what we do is we, we take the scientific results of the research uh, that, the, that, again, the, the, the animal nutritionists did at Nebraska and Kansas State, and those are published scientific results. They're peer-reviewed, so they're, they're in the body of knowledge. And so we compared that with uh, with what we would consider to be uh, a standard production process using uh, conventional feed corn. And we have uh, we have feed data, and we understand what those processes are. So what, what you uh, what you start doing is you break the whole system uh, from uh, cradle from corn production all the way to um, uh, grave consumer into a bunch of processes unit processes. And those processes look like a flowchart of boxes and arrows, right? And so, and it's the way you track the movement of corn through the system. We decided uh, we define a functional unit, the thing we care about. And in this case, it's a it's, it's a, a head of beef at the end of the process. And we didn't decide what boundaries are we going to draw, what circle in the system are we going to draw, because what do we really care about? We really care about where corn is fed to these uh, beef. We don't really everything is the same until uh, in in this process until you give them energy corn instead of conventional corn. So we, our boundary is then at that finishing stage where they're getting energy corn. And so that's where, and then the end point is when they leave the feedlot and they head to the abattoir to the, uh, to, to be processed. So processing facilities. So that's when we stop the analysis. That's the boundary out. Uh, and so this is a, a fairly narrow boundary that allows us to, to zoom in a little bit, but but in order to evaluate total efficiency of that animal as it heads into the, gets loaded into a trailer to the uh, to the abattoir, we have to understand if if it reduces um, an impact, greenhouse gas emissions, for example, or uh, or, or energy use, or whatever our, our indicators are, we have to consider everything that came before to that point as a as an impact. And so that's why the impacts here are may to some folks look fairly low, 5%, 6%, except for that's across the, everything that gets to that point. And that's why it's a relatively, I mean, you're moving the needle at that level. You're actually making things more sustainable at five or six point for the, for the animal at that stage in production. I guess I just want some clarification here, Marty, is the finishing on, on energy corn, is it really being used in the dairy cattle industry, feed yard, commercial operations? Oh. Is there any, you know, specific kind of operation that this is being studied or used in? That's a very good question. At this point, uh, we're talking about feed yard applications uh, because this is, you know, we, we, don't raise cattle predominantly in pens. We raise them predominantly in pastures. We finish them usually, you know, six to sixteen years, weeks of their entire two-year life before we harvest them. Before, uh, we uh, it occurs in the pasture, in the feedlot. The rest of it occurs in the pasture. So the finishing, which is where we fatten them up, uh, in, in the feedlot, is where we're talking about energy and corn being. Uh, provided we provide, I mean, we use corn as part of a feed ration, a full ration mix. It's not just corn, but a full ration mix that is a balanced diet for the animal uh, is provided um, at that point in their life. Now, the energy corn is uh, is just replacing 
conventional corn. It's not like we're adding corn that wasn't there before. We're just asking do, the, the simple question we were answering is, is this increase in enzyme in the corn, increasing the digestibility of the corn enough to improve the efficiency, effectiveness, and sustainability, therefore, of, uh, of, of cattle? And what we showed is that if we, in order to make this sort of manageable, we looked at, an, instead of one cow loading into a truck, we looked at a thousand head uh, so that we can get an averaging effect. And we found that we had over a thousand head of cattle. We had uh, 162,000 kilograms of CO2 reduction. That's a 5% decrease in, in greenhouse gas emissions, CO2 equivalent emissions. Uh, that's 66 acres less land necessary for that final finishing phase. Uh, more than 6 million gallons less water and uh, more than 260,000 kilowatts of hour of, of, of energy that were reduced through this process of, of just simply giving them uh, a more digestible corn. And what this speaks to is the power of understanding the whole system that, that if we want to make any process that we engage in every day more efficient. We have to understand it at its at those tiny little levels so we can understand the impact of one enzyme. Increasing one enzyme in the digestive system can have that kind of impact. Imagine the other possibilities that are unexplored, undiscovered still in our uh, sustainable food systems quest. And that's what's so exciting about this work. And we're, again, Syngenta brought this to us. Uh, they'd already done the hard work of the feed trials, developing the crop, uh, analyzing its impacts uh, at, at sort of production levels. All we did was sort of the bookkeeping part to evaluate its sustainability impact. You make a great point there, Marty. This is really exciting stuff. And I like how you compared, you know, our research and what's going on with food sustainability to a quest that just, you know, kind of makes things even more exciting when you view it in that manner. And I'm glad that you kind of put things into perspective because when you think about 5%, that's not too large of a number, but I mean, 66 acres of land and all that good stuff. I mean, that's, you know, quite impeccable, but I just have one other question for you. And it's, you know, another one kind of of clarification and that just being, is this Edigen corn whole flaked, um, used as silage, dry rolled? Does any of that matter in the grand scheme? Uh, it, it generally does not because this is the, the enzyme is heat tolerant. That was one of the criteria necessary for preparing it for the biofuels industry. So it takes high heat. So it does. So flaking it, uh, rolling it doesn't decrease the enzyme effectiveness. So, however, it's prepared for the and, and you know different. Uh, producers use different strategies in their feed formulation, whether they uh, uh, flake it or uh, or chip or grind, whatever their process is. Uh, and so that doesn't matter. What matters is, though, you know, we produce 100 million cattle in the U.S. annually for beef every year. And our analysis was per thousand head. So you, the actual impact on the U.S. alone as you know, you figure that's going to be a uh, hundred thousand times what I, uh, we take our analysis, 162,000 kilograms, multiply that times a hundred thousand. And that's the actual annual impact in the U.S. It's a big impact, 5%. Little percentages in big numbers turn out to be big numbers. And, and there are, our sustainability challenges are, are very much about little changes that give us big results. 
And so we we have to be, but those little changes require details and the detail like you just uh, asked about uh, could be critical because what if the process of, of rolling, steaming, flaking the corn reduced its impact and we didn't analyze that, then we would we would be misled, but that is not the case here. Gotcha. Well, Marty, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast, sharing the research process and your results. I really appreciate it. And I wish the Resiliency Center the best of luck in the food sustainability quest. Oh, thank you very much, Ashton. It was a lot of fun. Thanks again there to Dr. Marty Matlock for coming on and talking to us about what the University of Arkansas's Resiliency Center is doing with Syngenta seeds. I think the research is super fascinating and definitely one that needs to be done as we try to tackle climate change and kind of clear the ag industry's name. Absolutely. And it's just really cool research that they're working on down there. And I'm glad we're able to connect with folks all over the country to talk about what they're doing to contribute to the world of agriculture. Certainly, Delaney and folks, you can always go back and listen to any of the past episodes we have with the cool folks involved in the world of ag at agnewsdaily.com or wherever you really get your podcasts. And be sure to follow along with us on social media as well while you're at it at Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.